Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, October the 12th, 2023. Uh, last minute change of plans. We were planning to do our weekly show with my friend Beth Ann Patrick, the book critic of the LA Times, but she's sick. A couple of weeks ago, we did a, a wonderful show with her about upcoming nonfiction reads. Uh, she's always so well informed. I don't quite know how she gets all the books and information she does. One of the books that she strongly suggested is one called American Gun, the true story of the AR-15. It's just out. And since we couldn't do Beth Ann today because she's sick, I invited on the two authors of American Gun, the true story of the AR-15, Cameron McWhorter and Zusha Ellison. They're both uh, reporters. Their day jobs is at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's a fascinating book, a very troubling book, a haunting book. It's all already been very well received in New York Times, New Yorker, Washington Post, LA Times. It's not just the true story of the AR-15, it's the true story of a gun, the AR-15, which reflects America's love affair with killer weapons, uh, mass murder weapons. Um, and I wonder, uh, maybe we can start, uh, Zusha, with you. Um, is this the story of an American love affair with these guns? I mean, what does this story tell us, the AR-15, about this American obsession, this fetish with, with weapons? Yeah, I mean, this is the ultimate American story. Um, you know, we, we look at where we are now, right? The AR-15 is hated by millions. It's loved by millions more. It's become the focal point, the center point of this bitter debate we have about firearms in this country. You know, you have people marching on one side, holding up signs saying, come and take it with images of the AR-15. You have people with AR-15s crossed out saying it's the worst thing that's happened to our country. Um, you know, it's the most popular rifle in America now. It's, there's more than 20 million here. Um, it's also become a weapon that's often used by mass shooters. And so what we wanted to know is really, how did we get here? You know, how did we get to this point in history? And as we started looking into that story, it is the most American story you could ever come up with. It begins with the story of an inventor, a real Horatio Alger story of a guy just tinkering around in his garage who happened to come up with, you know, a very advanced rifle for his time. This, uh, and he's appropriately named uh, Eugene Stoner. That's right. So I'll, I'll paint a little picture of Eugene Stoner. He was a former Marine, Marine veteran. He served in World War II. He was a very gentle guy. Um, he never spanked his kids. He never swore. When he was upset, he would say, boy, that frosts me. And in the 1950s, he'd come home from the war, was working in an aircraft company, making parts. Every night, he would come home and tinker with gun designs. He wanted to invent the next best rifle. He, he would be drawing little designs everywhere he could. His family would be out to dinner. He would draw gun designs on the tablecloth. His wife would say, what are you doing? He, he would say, it's okay, it'll wash out. 
And he was just obsessed with engineering challenges. And one of the big things he wanted to do was improve on the military's rifle of the day. At that time, rifles were made of heavy wood and steel. You know, they'd been made that way for centuries. It's just the way it was done. But Stoner had no formal education in gun design. He had no college degree. And he was sort of freed from the dogmas of, of gun design. And so he said, why not use different materials to make um, rifles? And his first big advancement was using lightweight aluminum instead of heavy steel. And we can get into more about how he created the AR-15, but mm. it was really his outside the box thinking that got him started. Yeah, I don't, outside the box, I, I think there may be other ways of, uh, of describing that. Let, let's bring in your co-author, Cameron McQuirter. Uh, Cameron, uh, your, your has, has filled us in on the, the early history of the AR-15. Give us um, a similar history of where America was in terms of weapons whilst, uh, whilst um, Stoner was in inventing this, this, this weapon of mass murder, even if he was a, a gentle soul. Well, I mean, uh, Stoner was, his, his goal was to create a military rifle. Uh, and the reason it was, this was in the height of the Cold War so he's trying to create a rifle that will help U.S. troops and their allies fighting in all these insurgencies that were popping up in uh, around the world during the Cold War. So that was the design goal. Uh, let's create a weapon that can fire a lot of rounds where soldiers can go into the field and bring a lot of ammunition with them. The, the bullet, uh, the gun that he developed had a smaller bullet. Uh, and so it was easier to carry more ammunition. It was fired at high velocity. We can get into that later, but that caused a lot of damage when it hit the enemy. But his, uh, he was, he, his developments came at a perfect time for the U.S. military because they were in desperate need of, as Zusha said, this type of rifle that could really um, uh, meet the challenges of the, of the, the military challenges of the day. Zusha has introduced Stoner as a gentle man, a gentle soul, never raised his voice at home. Um, is there something, though, I mean, he's an inventor, but he's not inventing a, a vacuum cleaner or an iPhone or right. a refrigerator. He's, he's creating a, a weapon of mass murder, whether the military use it or gun owners use it. Did that, in, in your analysis of Stoner and understanding his life, not everyone, not all inventors um, are, are, are focused on, 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 on weapons, are they? I mean, what does it tell no, us about not. him? No, no, there are people who are inventing light bulbs or, you know, whatever, various types of innovations. I think that, I think it's important to, to not to get ahistorical about it. I mean, where we, because I think that's, I think you're, you're driving at a very important point, which is where we are now. So when, so when you see that rifle, you're thinking of mass murder. You're thinking of a mass shooting. That was inconceivable to Stoner at the time. There were wars. We just they just finished World War II, and now the Cold War was 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 uh, taking over the planet. And so, certainly, um, to the modern to, to our modern situation, to you sitting there thinking about the AR-15, you're thinking, "Oh my God, this is a weapon that has uh, this is a firearm that has caused a lot of problems." in our modern world and 
that's certainly true. Uh, but you got to remember, Stoner was not thinking that way. He was thinking, how do I develop a, a gun that would help our troops? Now, whether you believe in, you know, you could have some argument that war is terrible, of course, but in the context of that, there were, there are armies and there are, there are wars. He was focused on that. And Cameron, uh, uh, we were just coming off the summer of Oppenheimer. I'm not sure if you've seen that. I think that's a great point. We open our book with a quote from Oppenheimer. That's a very good point. Oppenheimer creates the bomb and, uh, and then lo and behold, he's, he's, he ultimately is sort of shocked by what, what he's created. I think, I don't think that Stoner had that same evaluation as he got older. However, I do think it would be baffling to him to, to see what has become of his gun. I don't think, again, he developed it for the military. And today we have a whole, obviously we have mass shootings that are a problem, but we also have people holding up the image of that gun as some sort of iconic uh, presentation of of individual rights against an authoritarian government or, or anti, anti-government. And that is really not anything he would have even conceived of. So, so remind us, we've, uh, Cameron, and then I want to get back to Zusha. Yeah. Um, we've done some shows on the NRA, histories of the NRA. Remind us of what the NRA was, was or wasn't when Stoner invented this weapon. Yeah, the, at the time in the 50s, there was beginning to be some, uh, as, as Americans suburbanized, America suburbanized, there were some issues of local ordinances, et cetera, restricting um, guns. And that had led to some po- political action by the NRA. They're increasingly where they were concerned about that. But really, it was, a, it was an organization that was attempting to promote gun safety and promote um, target shooting and and hunting like that was you know that was its real function in the 1950s and they were uh, eager to do that uh, that was they we can get into this later but certainly they the initial reaction of the gun owning public to the early commercial versions of the AR-15 in the 1960s and into the 70s was absolute, you know, like they were not interested. It, it sold very poorly. People were not, the traditional gun owner wanted, as Zusha was talking about, the heavy steel wood gun where you would fire one shot to, to knock out a deer or something like that. That was what the traditional gun owner owned and wanted. And right. so let's bring Zusha back in. Zusha, um, how much of this is really bound up as the history of the American gun, obviously, with the history of America in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the increasing paranoia about crime created by Nixon and Reagan, the transformation of the American city, racialization of crime, and all the other themes that many different writers have, have focused on, and you're all too familiar as a journalist. Yeah, those themes play huge roles in the history of the AR-15 and in the history of our country's relationship to guns. Um, When you talk about crime in the cities, uh, you know, it was at a high point in the 80s and 90s, and that led to some of the biggest gun control reforms we've had in our country. And one of our big missions in researching this book is 
you know, we knew that there was a federal assault weapons ban in the 1990s, passed in 1994 and was in place for 10 years. And we wondered, you know, how had Congress, which can barely pass anything around guns these days, you know, passed so many substantial measures to restrict them in the 1990s? And as we looked into that question, we found some fascinating answers. And the first very surprising and interesting answer was that police officers back during that time were very worried about gang members carrying guns like AK-47s and AR-15s. Now these are semi-automatic versions of military weapons. They usually come with large magazines so they can fire lots of rounds. And police officers were increasingly getting into shootouts with these guys who had these guns and they had handguns, sometimes revolvers, and it was no match. And so they began lobbying, you know, congressmen, anyone they could, that they wanted these guns to be banned. And in, in fact, as President Clinton marshaled support for the federal assault weapons ban in 94, he relied heavily on police groups. And we read numerous memos from Democratic politicians talking about how if they had support of police officers, they would be able to counteract the NRA, which was very strong at first. Yeah, and it's quite understandable. I mean, if, if you're a policeman, the last thing you want are, are criminals running around with uh, weapons of mass destruction. Right. And that, so that they were, you know, not much has changed since then in terms of the sides of the gun debate. But what was different back then is that the police were very much on the side of gun control. And that has changed a lot since then. Um, let me bring uh, Cameron in. Cameron, um, it talked about this paranoia about crime that began in the 70s, I guess, created by Nixon, carried on by not just Republicans, but it seems to be a particularly uh, rich theme, seem, if you like, for Republican politicians. How much of it was true in your analysis, in your research? Did America degenerate into criminality, violent criminality in the 70s and 80s? Well, there's, there have been, you know, and the statistics bear this out, there have been fluctuations in, in, in crime, you know, spikes in violent crime and reductions in violent crime. We just saw a recent one during post-COVID. There was a dramatic spike in violent crime in, in America's cities. So it does uh, wax and wane, and that is true. Uh, the, the role of the AR-15 was very much... Um, you know, there, we write, a, there's a chapter we have about a gang member who used an AR-15 to kill a police officer in Los Angeles. And that becomes a rallying cry. But the AR-15 was by no means the, the, the leader. It's become this iconic symbol of the gun debate. And, we're, and everybody knows that image. That being said, the vast majority of crimes, of gun crimes that are committed in this country or people committing suicide, et cetera, are with handguns. So um, this gun has developed this sort of cultural importance. But uh, when you look at the statistics of violent crime with guns, most of it is with handguns. We are talking with Cameron McQuirter and Zusha Ellenson, the authors of a very, very important new book called American Gun, The True Story of the AR. 15. I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, the quarterly journal of culture and politics, an excellent new publication that are allowing 
us to bring you this show. Uh, I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Cameron and Zusha to talk more AR-15. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties Online at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with the two authors, the co-authors of an important new book, American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15 by Cameron McWhirter and Zusha Ellenson. They're both, uh, their day jobs are as uh, reporters at the Wall Street Journal. Um, Zusha, I I brought up the NRA earlier, and maybe it was the wrong time to bring it up. How central is the NRA in terms of your true story of the AR-15 and the way it's become this mass-owned weapon of mass destruction? I think there are now, what, uh, 20 million AR-15s in America today. That's right. So the NRA plays a very interesting role um, in popularization of the um, AR-15, and it begins in the 80s and 90s. I'll tell you an interesting story. As President Bush, first President Bush, began looking at this issue of mass shootings, they had really just started happening in the late 80s to a a much wider degree. He and his uh, staff started looking at ways they could restrict these types of weapons. And they even got a concession from the NRA at the time that the NRA would support a ban on high capacity magazines. We found this in the records of the Bush, you know, in the Bush library. It was fascinating to see. So at that time, the NRA was willing to deal. They're saying, yes, we can support restrictions on magazines because we think that that'll be okay. And Bush was talking about doing that. Ultimately, it never happened. Then you fast forward to the Clinton presidency. And Clinton gets this assault weapons ban passed, and the NRA is fighting it tooth and nail at this point. And the moment it passes, the NRA has a powerful new new tool. And what is that powerful new tool? It's the AR-15. The AR-15 had been dragged into this gun debate, and there were about 400,000 people at the time that owned one, not that many. And they didn't think much of this gun. You know, who owned it at the time? They were maybe some veterans, maybe some collectors, maybe some survivalists. They didn't think much of it. But as soon as a ban passed, and which said this gun cannot be sold anymore, it became a very powerful political symbol. And after that ban passed, the NRA mobilized people all across the country and they voted out most any politician that voted for this ban. And it was a huge swing. The Republicans took control of the House in dramatic fashion because of this. And that 94 election, that 94 ban really transformed the gun debate in our country. And the NRA was a big part of that. Let's bring Cameron back in. Um, Cameron, just remind us of how damaging the AR-15 has been in terms of the loss of life in America. I know you know that um, in just one of the mass killings, uh, more lives were lost 
than in the than the, at least from the American point of view than the entire Afghan war. Well, you know, we opened the we opened the book in Las uh, with the Las Vegas shooting, uh, in which fifty eight people were killed that day and hundreds of other people wounded, and uh, that was all. That was all with an air with a guy shooting multiple AR-15s from a hotel room, uh, uh, and that is the kind of damage that the gun. Again, going back to the design principles at the beginning, that was that was what Stoner wanted a weapon that someone could fire quickly, fire rapidly, cause a lot of injuries and death to the enemy in a battle and um, and carry lots of, be able to fire a lot of ammunition. And that's that, but those same design principles are now being used by people who, uh, who, who are out to hurt other Americans, which is, again, would be stupefying to, to Stoner. The, the gun can not only there's there's various ways this gun was an ingenious invention in terms of firearms but it also uh but that also makes it really 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 deadly and easy to shoot i think i can't stress that enough i don't know if you've ever fired uh guns no, i haven't fortunately so, so but, but, but back to my question I mean, about I mean, the, the loss of life uh that's an important Vegas, Andy Hook. yeah yeah that's an important point is that this gun if you fire a an M1, which is the gun Americans carried in World War II, it's a big, heavy rifle, and, and you feel it in your shoulder, it's it's very hard to shoot. If you fire an AR-15, it's incredibly easy. So it's like it's like a weed whacker. It and and so you have the guy in Uvalde who had never fired a gun until that day, and he goes in and causes the havoc that he caused. You have the shooter in Dayton, Ohio, several years ago, who who went in, and uh, he he's outside of a bar in Dayton, Ohio. There are police officers right near him with AR-15s themselves, and they kill him within thirty seconds. But because the gun is so easy to shoot and you can fire off so quickly, so many rounds, he, he's able to. to no, I, I take your point, Cameron, yeah. and and it's terrifying and all yeah. the rest of it, but. Do you have numbers in terms of the amount of well people have been killed by the AR-15? Well, in we, the go last into, 10 or 20 we go into we go into we go into data about the number of mass shootings that are increasingly using you know mass shooters are increasingly drawn to this gun. But again, I would reiterate, uh, in fairness, that that the vast majority of people being killed by guns in this country are being killed with handguns. So there are. You know, there have been hundreds of people killed with AR-15s uh, in recent years. And I think that the scary statistic is that number, the number of mass shootings involving AR-15s is increasing. And we've we looked at, at uh, very disturbing writings left by some of these mass shooters, uh, Buffalo, et cetera, where they go into why they're attracted to that gun, why the AR-15 was appealing to them. And... It becomes this sort of copycat uh, obsession with the gun, and they really start um, they they seek it out. and And one of the key points that uh, uh, we stress in the book is that people who uh, you know, if our gun laws are designed so that people who have committed crimes cannot buy a gun, I mean, they don't. That doesn't always work, of course, but that's the goal, right? That that if you commit a felony, Andrew, you committed a felony, you go to buy a gun, you're not allowed to. 
the vast majority of people buying AR-15s to use them to harm people, you know, people who are these, these disturbed mass shooters, they've never committed a felony. They may be saying crazy stuff online about how they want to hurt other people. They may be discussing things like that, but they haven't committed a felony. So they walk into a gun store, buy their guns legally, and then they go commit a horrible act. And that's that is where our country need, is start. Some people in this country are starting to focus on that problem. We are speaking with two intrepid, brave reporters, uh, Cameron McQuirter and Zusha Ellenson, Ameri uh, authors of new book, American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15. Um, Zusha, let's spend the rest of this conversation talking about what to do about this gun. I mean, Cameron earlier, just, just before the break, talked about the way in which most people who still buy the AR-15 aren't mass murderers. Of course, the NRA and the pro-gun lobby approaches, guns don't kill people, people do. Having written this book, The True Story of the AR-15, do you think that this is a gun that should be banned for anyone? That's a, Yeah, that's a great question. Let, let, yeah, let's talk about who um, owns this gun and maybe who shouldn't own this gun. So to start off, as we said, there's about 20 million AR-15s in this country. And the reason people like them is manifold. Um, gun, gun owners will tell you that they like tinkering with them. This is a gun that you can replace all the parts. Guys that like to mess around with their cars or motorcycles on the weekend, there's that draw to this type of gun. Other people use them for um, hunting small game, for hunting coyotes or hogs. A lot of people like them for target shooting. Um, they've also become, as we spoke about, a symbol of the Second Amendment. Um, and so people will tend to buy them. Um, when democratic politicians come out and say that they're going to ban this type of gun. So there's many different reasons that people own them. And I think what we found as we researched this book is that, you know, these mass shootings are carried out by a very few disturbed individuals. So the question is, how do you keep them out of those individuals' hands? And it seems like every time we cover a mass shooting, everyone around these people knew that they were going to commit a mass shooting. You take the um, attacker in Parkland from 2018. He had posted videos online saying he was going to be the next school shooter. You know, he had written about it online on social media. And this happens time and time and time again. So we have to ask ourselves, is how do we stop those people from going into a store and buying AR-15s? Yeah, but this isn't just, I mean, it's not like you could let one of these disturbed people into a gun store and say, well, you can't have an AR-15 because we might be slightly worried you'll commit mass murder, but you can have another kind of gun. Right. And so the way that, so people are taking a more surgical approach to this now. And one of the ways they do that is with these things called red flag laws, right? This is not a blanket ban on a bunch of guns. This is a, you know, a very precise approach that allows authorities to seize weapons from people who are threatening others or themselves. So that's one more surgical approach. Another approach is that some schools are taking um, very seriously threat assessment. And this is a whole field that's developing now. Um, for instance, the school district where the Columbine High School shooting happened, they have this very interesting system where if a student makes a threat, 
they on social media or however, they begin a very intensive program where the kid goes into therapy, where they monitor their social media and they follow them even after they graduate. And so they've, the premise of this program is if someone threatens you, someone makes a threat of a mass shooting, you take it very seriously, you don't laugh it off, and you follow that person sometimes for years. So that's another approach that's um, sort of gaining steam, having these more sophisticated threat assessment programs. Let's go to uh, Cameron. Are you in agreement with, uh, with your co-author on this in terms of regulation? Is it really an issue of monitoring people who might well, be disqualified because of uh, threats or, or behavior that seem to suggest a, a potential for mass murder? Well, I think there are, uh, I think that those are approaches that people are trying and are, are having some success. I think also there are people talking about raging, raising the age limits. Uh, right. How old do you have to be to get one of these things? Well, in a lot of places, it's the age is 18. It's state by state, but in a lot of places it's 18. Uh, in a lot of states, the uh, it's pretty. It's walk in and walk out. And and again, if you don't have a felony, uh, there's a, there's a federal program where they check the gun. And I mean, check how much your they cost, Cameron? How much would if if I went into my local store? And I'm guessing in California, where I am, and probably New York, it's slightly more difficult. But how much are these things cost? It really uh, it varies at this point, but you could get one for four hundred bucks, four hundred fifty bucks. I mean, not a great one, but you could get one that works. There are people who, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the issue of ghost guns. People making, you know, the only part of the of you know the you can make you can make these guns uh, or parts of these guns through 3D printing, and and they aren't registered. Uh, there are lots of ways you can get this gun and get get it fairly inexpensively. Um, and so it's become um, now certainly there are high higher end versions of the gun you can get, but this is really something that um, is ubiquitous. You can buy it anywhere and any gun store, you can buy this gun. I have to admit that this conversation has not cheered me up. Man. There are 20 million of these guns. You can't get them back. They're, they are um, weapons of one kind of mass destruction or another. Are you as depressed as I am by all this? Having you've dedicated year or two of your lives to writing this thing is there anything to cheer us up about which one which one is that which one are you asking i guess uh, who, whoever's day. willing to take that question uh i'll start i'll jump in first and i'll say uh, yeah i'll say uh y yes i'm I, i'm not you know we're, we're reporters we've been reporters for a long time so it's pretty hard to label us pollyannas uh in any regard and certainly this subject is uh, is a very, very, very difficult issue. But I also think it's important to remember that we didn't have this problem, you know, previous generations. We had other problems, but we did not have this problem. And so we can figure our way out of it. I, 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 I am not an engineer. That's why I'm a reporter. So I don't have that brain. But I began, uh, through this re reporting of this book, I really began to respect the engineer's mind and this notion of agnostically approaching a problem, not having that's a liberal solution, that's a conservative solution, just finding, let's try these, let's try these various solutions, see what works. There's not going to be some blanket simple answer. And I think 
your your reference to the ban, you know, that's something politicians keep talking about. Well, let's have an assault weapons ban. And it sounds great. And people embrace it because it's it's simple. One day we'll wake up and the guns will be banned and we won't have this problem anymore. But the truth is there are upwards of 20 million in civilian hands today. And the idea of even if you stop sales tomorrow, the idea of rounding all them up would be impossible, implausible at least. So how we so so understanding that the technology is here, you know, we I think one of the themes of this book that that sort of bubbled up as we reported was technology arrives before society is ready for it. Mm. Uh, you've you've delved into this issue a, a lot, but that's what happened here, right? We have a technology that is uh, in the in in the in the realm of firearms is a very elegant and simple. You know, he was a brilliant guy in terms of developing a rifle uh, and with less parts, lighter, could fire more rounds, all these things that were sort of design objectives. But the, but the technology has gotten ahead of us. It's gotten beyond him. It certainly got beyond him, uh, but it's certainly gotten beyond us, too. So we now have to, as Zusha said earlier, we need to surgically start to think about the issue is if people wanted to shoot this gun and just go to the target range and shoot this rifle, no one, no, there would be, we would not be having this conversation, right? That's not, and the people who do that, fine. If that's your hobby and that's your interest, do it. But the issue is someone who is bent on hurting people can use this weapon very quickly to hurt a lot of people. And how do we, how do we reduce the chances of that happening and stop it when it starts to happen? And I think, but I think what about the manufacturers did they, in your research, did they have a sense of responsibility? I'm um, going to give that to Zusha. Yeah, yes. That's a great question. Um, so we're Wall Street Journal reporters, although we are national reporters, we cover a lot of breaking news like mass shootings, disasters. We naturally were drawn to the business story behind the AR-15, and that's one of the most fascinating things that we hope to tell the public about how this became such a popular product. Um, one of the most interesting things is that this gun was shunned by the gun industry for years, you know, for decades. We spoke with early AR-15 makers, and they would bring their wares to the NRA show, and NRA members would walk up to them and flip them off, give them the middle finger. They didn't want to see this plastic, this uh, plasticky aluminum gun, this military-looking gun at their convention. They, they were fans of, you know, the old sporting firearms. And it took years for it to really become a mainstream product. What happened was, after 9-11, a couple big cultural and political shifts occurred, right? You had a country on a war footing. And every, at that time, everyone wanted something that looked military. People were buying Hummers, camo clothing, and this gun fit right into that. The assault weapons mm -hmm. ban lapsed. And there were a couple other new laws passed that made it just such an appetizing product for big gun makers. And the biggest secret to all of this is this gun was incredibly simple and cheap to make. You can churn out the parts at any machine shop. You don't need skilled labor. You don't need expensive machinery. And the margins on the product were astonishing to people in the industry. And they couldn't believe it. They were the margins were twice the amount of normal guns. And so everyone jumped in. And by the time you get to 2008, there's scores of companies making the AR-15 
And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands being made. And that the business story is fascinating. We got to look at documents that no one has looked at from a lawsuit filed against one of the biggest AR-15 makers in the country. This was a private equity-backed gun conglomerate that made the gun used by Adam Lanza and Sandy Hook. They sued the gun manufacturer and they got all these documents. And we looked at what, one of, what the CEO of this, comp, this conglomerate called Freedom Group thought after Sandy Hook. They asked him, you know, did you think about stopping production of AR-15s after you saw all these kids murdered, after you saw this most horrific massacre? And what he said was, no, we were in the business of legally selling guns to legal gun owners. There's nothing other to do than wake up on Monday morning and continue to do that. Does that, I mean, yes or no, does that horrify you? It was certainly eye-opening. Yes or no? Yes or no? I mean, for me, I am, I bear witness as a reporter and writer to what happens in the world. And I thought it was important to put that in the book to show people what they thought. But I'm not interested in passing my own judgment on it. I think it's important. Well, to- when you write a book about the AR-15, you are one way or the other. By, by even making the decision to write the book, you're passing a judgment. Let, let's just end with thinking about the future. Is it conceivable that there's another Eugene Stoner in some basement garage somewhere developing another kind of weapon that will make the AR-15 a footnote, a relic of the past? Are, are there new technologies? You talked about three the making of guns in a 3D sense. Uh, it, it, can technology change everything once again? Technology, I, I, I think I would answer your answer you by saying technology is always changing everything. I think Stoner was baffled that his gun, toward the end of his life, he died in 1997, he was baffled that his gun was still being used yeah. by the military and was still a, a key central platform of firearms. You know, it still was in use and is still in use. You know, he, he thought something would have come along to replace it. And I think there are certainly people out there working very hard to do that. Uh, and, you know, if you look at you know, the Ukrainian war right now, it's, you know, drones are fighting that war to a right, right. And, uh, so, so let me let me end with you, Zusha. What have you learned from this AR-15 book in terms of the next time someone comes out with something paradigmatic in terms of weapons that changes everything? Are there lessons from your book about earlier regulation. I mean, if 20 million people have these things, there's not an awful lot the regulators can do. Maybe they can buy them back, but who knows how many of their owners would sell them. Um, what, what, what do regulators, what have they learned? Maybe both of you can an end here because it's, it's, I think to me, that's the most important question. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting things we found was looking at the assault weapons ban, the federal assault weapons ban. So back in the 1990s, Gun con- support for gun control was at an all-time high. And so politicians then had the political will, they had the police officers, they had everyone behind them to make lasting changes to this country. And it, in some cases, they passed laws that have been somewhat effective. You, you know, they may, came up with a whole background check system back then, and that worked pretty well. But when they were crafting this assault weapons ban, um, it was written by people who didn't quite understand how guns worked. They ended up banning the form of these weapons, not the function. So after they passed the ban, 
people still made gun makers made the same type of weapon. It looked a little different to comply with the ban, but sales actually rose of AR-15s after they ostensibly banned them. And I think the bigger lesson there is that we cannot be in our separate silos. If you're a democratic politician who wants to regulate these guns, you have to get to know them. You have to talk to gun owners. You have to understand how they work and how they are used. And there's a tendency from both sides just to stay in your little groups. And finally, Cameron, do you have anything to add on that in terms of how we we as a society or politicians and regulators should be dealing with the next big innovation? I use that word carefully in 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 in, in weapons. Well, I mean, I mean, forget about weapons, just in, in general. I mean, think about the discussion. I'm I'm heartened by the discussions that are taking place regarding AI, right? Well, at least we're mm. having them now. Uh, whereas you know, social media, all these other technologies just sort of arrive, they flop at our, at our, at our kitchen table, and they're here. And I think the AR-15, um, I think Zusha makes an excellent point, we need to have people who understand the technology, and understand the use of the technology, so that we can begin to understand, or formulate regulations that would be effective, again, with the goal being, like you said, there's 20 million here, so if there's 25 million, you know, how, how, you know, if we banned them tomorrow, there's still tens of millions of rifles here and they're not going away. So the technology is here. How do we keep them out of the hands of people who want to hurt other people? That's what we need to think about. And any, any, any regulation, any platit political platitudes about um, from one side or the other, strident declarations really don't mean anything when it comes to keeping Americans safe.